We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Reading from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Jesus, you tell us in this passage that you, you tell us these things so that our joy might be full and complete. And we pray that that's exactly what you would do right now in these moments as we look at your word together. And as we come to listen to you together and all that you have to say to us in this passage, all of the joy that you desire to pour into our lives because you are good and gracious and you are the joy giver. So would you come and would you do that? Some of us, we we come into this room very skeptical that that's the kind of God that you are, that you would desire to do this in our life. Others of us, we come in a season of joy. Some of us come in a season of sorrow and tears. Some of us are in a season of despair and anxiety. Some of us are just bored with life, numb to what is happening in the world around us. God, we are in so many different places and yet we're all the same. We are all in need of the joy that only you can give. So we pray that you would come and give it to us now. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. You can take your seats. I think I'll preach, preach like this this morning. Uh, let, me, let me raise this. This would be really awkward for all of us. Uh, last week, we started a new sermon series called, What is a Christian? Where's our sermon graphic? Oh, there it is. I love this. Uh, Big thanks to Allison Jang in our church, who's a graphic designer, who's now doing these for us. 
really, really cool to see people in our church using, using their gifts within the church. So uh, thanks, Allison, wherever you are. Uh, but we started this new sermon series called What is a Christian? And uh, this is such an important question, both for those of us who are here who are exploring Christianity and trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, but it's also an important question for those of us who have been Christians for a very, very long time. What, what is a Christian? Our hope for this series is to actually bring some clarity to that question because I think there is a lot of, a lot of cultural confusion about what a Christian is. Uh, some people think being a Christian means being a good person, or being a Christian means being a religious person, or being a Christian means being a conservative person, or being a churched person, or being a nice person. But what we looked at last week is that being a Christian, more than anything else, is being a loved person. A loved person. The essence of Christianity is that you have experienced God's love for you, his unconditional love for you, all because of what Jesus has done for you. And when you experience that love, and to the degree that you experience that love, it changes everything. It changes everything. You become someone who loves the church. That's actually what we're looking at next week. You become someone who loves the world. That's two weeks. And you become someone who loves Jesus, and that's today. A Christian is someone who loves and worships Jesus Christ. And that is one of our greatest aims as a church, by the way, is for people who come into this community that, that we would come to see Jesus as far more believable and far more beautiful than we could ever imagine or think. And if that's never really sunk in for you, my prayer is that it would today. So, a Christian is someone who loves Jesus, but what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to love Jesus? I mean, if, if experiencing the love of Christ for you cultivates a love of Christ in you, then what does that love actually look, look like? What does it mean? I want to give you three words today. Three words from this passage, and hopefully they just kind of stick with you for this week. That they just, they, that you keep coming back to them. And here they are. Abiding, obeying, and trusting. Three very simple but very profound words that tell us what it, what it means to love Jesus. Abiding, obeying, and trusting. So let's talk about each of those first. Abiding. All right. Ten times. We read 11 verses this morning. Ten times in these 11 verses, Jesus uses the word abide. And we don't really use that word anymore. When's the last time you used the word abide? That's kind of not a part of our common vocabulary. So if you read other translations, they'll use words like remain. Jesus, it'll say, uh, remain in me and I will remain in you. Or they'll use words like stay. Stay in me and I will stay in you, as Jesus says in verse 4. But Abide is, is, is a, it's a much better word. Because the, the, the verb abide is the verb form of the word abode. And abode 
is where you make your home. Your abode is your home. Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying in verse 4. When he says, abide in me and I'll abide in you, he's saying, make your home in me. And I will make my home in you. And that's actually the same thing he says two chapters earlier in John chapter 14 when he says that a Christian, is, when, what it means to be a Christian is that he and the Father come and make their home in someone. I mean, do you hear how intimate that is? How personal that is? How relational that is? Here is what Jesus is saying. That the first thing that love for him entails is a living, dynamic, personal relationship with him. Uh, we, we are made for relationship. We long for relationship. Elon Musk, back in 2017, after he had just gone through a divorce and experienced a breakup with his then-actress girlfriend, he did, he did an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. And this is what he said in that interview. He said, being in an empty house and no footsteps echoing through the hallways and no one ever there How do you make yourself happy in a situation like that? When I was a child, there was one thing I said, I never want to be alone. I never want to be alone. I mean, that is a man who, by the world standards, has everything. I mean, he started like a gazillion companies that are worth billions of dollars. And here he is saying, the thing that I long for more than anything else is to be known. Now what Jesus is saying with this word abide is that you can actually experience that with the God of the universe. Not just another person, but the one who made you and who made all things wants to actually have a personal relationship with you. Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar He wrote this book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? That's like my favorite book title ever. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Because, you know, to become a Christian in the first three centuries was not to your social advantage. In fact, there were all sorts of disadvantages to it. Like, for example, your life was kind of sort of on the line. And so what, what... people can't figure out is that the question everybody's been asking is, why did Christianity explode in the first centuries when it faced such opposition? And Hurtado says there's actually a number of reasons for this, but one of them was relationship. Christianity said something totally unique about what it looked like to know God, that you had all these pagan religions in the first centuries, and they believed that the best that you could do was appease the gods. And then you had all of these Eastern religions that said, you know, there is a God, but God is impersonal. You can't know God. But then Christianity came along and it offered something totally unique. It said something that no other religion said. Every other religion said you could know about God. And Christianity came along and said, you can know God. You can have a a personal, living, dynamic relationship with the transcendent God of the universe. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know about Jesus, or do you know Jesus? There is a big difference. One is a Christian, and one is not. Do you know Jesus, or do you know about Jesus? That might sound like a strange question to ask a bunch of people in church, 
But I think that's actually part of the problem. Because we assume that going to church and knowing about Jesus makes you a Christian, but it doesn't. I have a a very dear friend. His name is Michael. He said something to me a couple years ago that really shocked me. He said that he had grown up in a Christian home. Uh, his, 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 His parents had raised him as a Christian. But it wasn't until he got to college that the reality of who Jesus is actually became real to him. He said he knew about God, but none of it, none of it was real to him. And you say, well, what, you know, I know a lot of people who have that story. What's so, what's so shocking about that? Well, Michael's last name is Keller. His dad is Tim Keller. If that doesn't mean anything to you, this is one of the most influential Christians, pastors, authors of the last 50 years. I mean, someone who's probably shaped me as a Christian more than anyone else has. And so it kind of shocked me to hear Michael say, I grew up in Tim Keller's house, but I didn't really understand this whole Christianity thing. And what he said was, he said, look, I had all of the information. I had all of the data. I went to church. I knew a lot of things about God, but I never had the personal relationship. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've never experienced what it is like to abide, to have God make his home with you, to know him and to love him and to enjoy him. And if you have not, you can know him today. He can come in today. And I will tell you, it has changed my life and it has changed countless of people's lives and it can change your life. And if you are a Christian, you know, if you do know him, I want you to notice something from this passage. Abiding is not a one-time thing. It's not something that you do once and you never do it again. It's an ongoing thing. In fact, Jesus actually commands it in this passage. He says, abide. It's a command. It's an, and you say, well, how do I do that? And Jesus tells, tells you two very practical ways in this passage. Here's the first. Prayer. Look at verse 7. He says, ask Whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Ask, says Jesus. Like, talk to God. Prayer is to abiding what conversation is to marriage. Imagine if you only talk to your spouse for five minutes a day. Or five minutes a week. That's not going to be a very healthy relationship. You see, abiding requires communication. And here's the thing, God is not trying to guilt you into this. I mean, let me, as somebody who, who spends a lot of time feeling pretty terrible about my prayer life, let me just tell you, guilt will never help you pray more. What Jesus is trying to say in this passage is that God wants to hear from you even more than you want to talk to him. He's eager. He wants you to talk to him. And get this, he wants to talk to you. And that's actually the second application here of how you abide. Is scripture. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Where do we find the words of Jesus? We find them in the Bible. The Bible is the way that God talks to you. This is why Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active. Because the living Christ is actively speaking through the scriptures. 
It's why Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We abide in him by letting his words abide in us. See, here's what this means. It means that reading the Bible is not meant to be busy work for you. It is meant to be God's way of letting you hear his voice in your life. And I just wonder how much differently we would approach reading the Bible if that's how we thought of it. If if we came to the Bible saying, Lord, I don't want to miss what it is that you want to say to me right now. See, abiding, abiding. But here's the second Here's the second thing that love for Jesus entails. Obeying. Now look at verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that keeping his commandments, obedience, is actually, it's a, it's a test, it's a marker, it's an indicator of whether or not you really love him and whether or not you really understand his love for you. Uh, I'll never forget uh, calling my wife's parents uh, to, to ask them for their blessing to marry their daughter. We've been dating for like, you know, nine months at that point. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this, but I'm kind of old school. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to talk to her mom and dad. She's really close with their family. This is a way for me to honor them. The problem is they, they live on the other side of the country. So, you know, I'm old school, but I'm also cheap. So I couldn't get on a plane and go there and do it. So I called him. I called him and I, and I you know, and to my credit, I, I texted him in advance and I said, I've, there's something I'd like to talk with you about. You know, could we schedule a time to get on the phone? So, you know, we get on this call and I kind of give them my whole spiel and tell them how much I love their daughter and want to marry her. And then I ask them for their blessing. And that's the part where you just, you know, you just... You stop talking and you wait and you let them respond. And this, is, this was the very first words out of their mouth. They said, can we call you back? <laughs> they said, we, we'd like to take just a moment and talk amongst ourselves. Now, very uncool. Very uncool. Uh, But let me tell you, I was not rattled at all. I mean, there wasn't any sense of anxiety or insecurity. And here's why. Because I knew, I knew that they liked me. I do this. In fact, they might be watching right now, and I'm their favorite son-in-law. They have three of them. (laughs) I knew that they liked me. I knew that they accepted me. I knew that they were thrilled about this relationship. Now, for some reasons known only to them and God, they wanted to take a moment to talk amongst themselves. But I I knew what the answer was going to be. And you see, there are two fundamental ways you can approach God. Two fundamental ways. One says, if I obey, then God will accept me. And the other says, God totally and utterly loves and accepts me, and now I am free to obey. And you see, one leads to anxiety and insecurity and fear, and the other leads to confidence and assurance. And the question is, 
Which of these approaches is Christianity? Is it the first or is it the second? Now, when Jesus says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, you might say, well, that sounds like the first approach. If I obey, then God will accept me. But look at the rest of the verse. Look at the second half of this verse. Jesus says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus obey the Father to get his love? Or did he obey the Father because he had his love? Did did, did Jesus come into this world and live a perfect life and die on a cross so that the Father would love him? Or was it because the Father already loved him? We talked about this last week, actually, when we talked about the Trinity as this divine community of love where God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have always existed before the foundations of the earth in perfect love and mutual delight. See, Jesus did not obey to get God's love. He obeyed because he had it. And if you were a Christian, if you're a Christian, the same will be true of you. You'll you'll submit to God's commands because he loves you and because you love him. You know, Augustine, this is what Augustine wrote about verse 10. He said, it is not that we keep God's commandments first and then he loves, but that he loves us and then we keep his commandments. And what I would say to you is this is, there is, Christianity is the only religion that says this. It is the only religion that says God loves and we obey, not we obey, then God loves. And, and, and you say, well, okay, wait a minute, but like, so I have to obey? No, listen, that is how all love relationships work. The more, you know this, the more that you love someone, the more you want to say your wish is my command. The more you love someone, the more you are able to submit your desires and your preferences to theirs. See, the gospel says love always comes before obedience. God loves you before you obey. Love always comes before obedience, but love always leads to obedience. Always in the Christian life. That's how it works. And, and the question is, well, how do you know if you're obeying God to get his love or because you have it? That's a really important question. How do you know if you're obeying God to get his love or because you have it? I think we see a couple things in this passage. Here's the first. Do you have a sense of joy or drudgery in obedience? I mean, look at verse 11. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's a sense of, of delight in following Jesus and in giving yourself to his ways. Someone just in this church actually just said to me recently, you know, the gospel has been sinking in for them. And they said, you know what? I used to obey because I had to. And now I'm following Jesus and his ways because I want to. A religious person says, I'm going to obey, but there's a sense, your life, your life can get very moral. And you can say, I'm going to, I am going to apply the ethics of Jesus to my life. But they're underneath 
There's a sense of drudgery. There's a sense of duty. There's a sense of frustration. But for the Christian, you see underneath, there is a sense of joy and delight. And you say, wait a minute, always? I mean, what about when God asks me to do things that I don't want to do? Okay, that's fair. Obedience is not always fun. But that actually leads to another way that you know if you're obeying to get God's love or, you, or because you have it. And that's this. You choose to obey even when you don't want to. See, if you say, God, I'll give you this part of my life, but not that part, then that just shows that you, have not, you actually have not understood his love for you and what it means for you to love him. To love Jesus means that you begin to let go of all of your conditions. And I think a lot of times we treat our lives kind of like a house, and we, we put up these no trespassing signs in certain rooms. We say, well, God can come in here, he can come into this room, but he can't come into that room. He can have this part of my life, but he can't have that part of my life. But to become a Christian means you let go of all of your conditions. You relinquish control of every part of your life. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. See, love for Jesus is being able to say, God, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. But you love me and you are for me and I'm going to give myself to your ways. I'm going to follow you. Even when I don't want to. Here's the third way to know whether you're uh, obeying to get God's love or because you have it. It's supernatural character transformation. Now, we could spend a whole sermon on this bit about the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. But let me just say this. When you have God's love in you, it leads to a supernaturally changed life. Your life becomes fruitful. It's not just about external obedience or behavior modification. It is about becoming a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and these fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Supernatural character transformation is a part of obedience. So love for Jesus means obeying. Love for Jesus means abiding. Here's the last thing. It means trusting. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, this is incredible, because here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is someone who is always at work in your life. There is someone who is, who is committed to transforming you and to making you into a fruitful person. That there is someone who is determined to, to, to turn you into a person of love and joy and peace and kindness like you would never believe. And that someone, Jesus is saying, is God himself. And, and one of the ways that God accomplishes these purposes in our lives is pruning. This is the metaphor that Jesus is using. H have you ever seen a gardener prune a bush? I mean, have you ever seen, I've, I've killed every plant I've ever tried to take care of, but have you ever seen someone who actually knows what they're doing really prune a bush? It's, it's kind of scary, actually. 
is kind of confusing because it looks like they're killing the plant. They don't just cut it a little here and a little there. No, they, they cut it all the way back. And it looks like they are destroying the plant, but in actuality, they're making it so that it comes back even more fruitful and even more beautiful in the end. But no cut is random. You know, every cut is with intent, and it has purpose. And it's for the good of the plant. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like God is making cuts in your life that you wish he wouldn't? Have you ever said, God, I don't understand why you would let this happen or how you could possibly bring anything good out of this in my life? Have you ever thought, when I look at the circumstances of my life, It feels like God is against me. Friends, there is no one who is for you more than God. There is no one who loves you more than him. Look at verse 9. This has just sat with me all week. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Let me ask you a question. How much does God the Father love God the Son? It is more than any pastor could ever put into words. It is a love that is incomprehensible. And Jesus is saying, that's how loved you are, which means God does not allow anything to happen in your life that is not ultimately going to work out for your good. You say, wait a minute. Pastor, are you saying that the reason God allows hard things to happen in my life is because he loves me? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. He is saying that behind everything that comes into your life is a love that you cannot quite fathom. And you say, well, I don't know if I could believe that. How could I ever believe that? There's a story of a, a sailor uh, from the 18th century who made his living uh, making trips across the Atlantic, carrying all sorts of goods. And in one of these trips, his wife was with him. And they, came, they encountered this uh, fierce, violent storm. The wind was violent. The waves were like stories tall lightning and thunder all around them, and he's trying to steer the ship, and she comes running up from below deck, and she is convinced that they are about to die, and he looks at her, and he says, God will see us through. And she says to him, how can you be so sure? And he pulls out his sword, and he points it at her. And he says, are you afraid? And she says, no, and he says, why not? And she said, because I know the heart behind the hand. And he looked at her and he said, and so it is with I and God. I know the heart behind the hand. The only thing that will get you to believe that God brings hard things into your life because he loves you is if you know and trust the heart, the loving heart behind God's sovereign and pruning hand. A heart where no cut is random and a heart where every cut is out of love, 
And I want you to hear this this morning because I know that some of us, you're, you are in a season of pruning. You are in a season where things are happening in your life and you cannot make sense of it. And God's ways seem so mysterious and so hard to understand. And you are wondering, is God angry at me or is he punishing me? And the answer is no, God is loving you. I mean, how there is such hope for the Christian in trial because of what this passage is teaching us. John Newton, who's kind of a famous hymn writer, hymn writer he, wrote, he wrote this hymn called I Ask the Lord. And uh, it, it's a hymn that's actually, it's all about, it's a prayer, and it's a prayer about abiding, about, about wanting to know Jesus more deeply. Here's the first verse. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's his prayer. And then here's, here's the second verse. He says, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." In other words, God did not answer his prayer the way that he wanted him to. And he goes on in other verses to say that God let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, all my plans that I made, and God humbled my heart and laid me low. Life did not look like what he wanted or what he thought. God was not working according to the way that he thought. And then there's this whole verse where he's basically asking God, why? Why would you let this pruning come into my life? Why would you drive me to this kind of pain? And then here's the last verse, and it's God's response to him. And he says this, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. When God brings things into your life that you wish he, he wouldn't, when he takes things from your life that you wish he hadn't, when he doesn't answer prayer the way that you asked, it is not to punish you. It is not to hurt you. It is not because God is mad at you. It is because he loves you. It's because he's trying to grow you. It's, it's because he's trying to teach you to abide in him. The true vine, the only one who can actually bring you real life as opposed to all of these other vines that we try to suck life out of and try to find our joy in. Never mistake God's pruning as God's payback. Never mistake God's love is God's judgment. Trust him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to love Jesus. And the reason that you can trust him is actually found right here at this table, this table that we come to every week. 
This table is the reason that you can know God's pruning is never God's payback. Because on the cross, when Jesus was making a way for us to abide, for us to know God, for us to have a personal relationship with God, God did not just cut him back, but he cut him off. Isaiah chapter 53, which foreshadows the cross, says this. It says that he was cut off from the land of the living. And you see, in his greatest trial, Jesus, he was cut off from God so that in all of our trials, we can trust that we are being cut back. In his trial, Jesus took all of God's anger and all of God's punishment so that now in our trials, we can actually trust in God's love. This table is where we most clearly see God's loving heart behind God's sovereign hand. And if you have never seen it, Jesus invites you to see it today. And if you have seen it, Jesus invites you to see it again. Because the more that you see his heart for you at this table, the more you will trust him. The more you will joyfully follow him and give your life to him and obey him. And the more you will abide in him. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table where you make known to us your love for us and your heart for us and your affections for us. Affections that are so great that you were willing to go to the greatest lengths to have us and to make a way back for us to abide and to know you and to be with you and to be known by you. And so would you fill our hearts this morning with joy and with hope and with assurance as we come to this table and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.